0: Good morning, I'm John, I, don't, I've, I haven't got to meet you yet, I would love to, and uh, this is an exciting morning as we continue through um, the text of the Old Testament, we're walking through First uh, and 2 Samuel, First and 2 Kings, if you don't have um, a Bible with you, there's some black ones there in those chair bags, there'll actually be some page numbers even up there, uh, 312 today uh, that Jeff Shaver and Larry put together for us. But I, I want you to think with me just for a moment about fine literature. We don't talk about that a whole lot in church, but um, in 1859 was the first release of the book, "War and Peace." And I, I, I don't know about you, but I, I've always like I mean it's just a monster. I've never read the book. I've started a couple times and frankly been bored out of my tears and stopped. and if you like the book, that's more definitely different taste out there. but this book is is a masterwork of literature whether you like the style or not it, it was during the russian realist period and it is about real life I mean, that's exactly what it sounds like leo tolstoy was trying to write about what life was actually like and the title very much betrays what the book's about but with a twist It was about the wars when Napoleon attacked Russia and the czars there in Russia. And and this was over a very long period of time. There was a great deal of unrest. There was a great times of poverty. And Tolstoy kind of put vignettes or, or pictures of about eight rich families in Russia and what they went through. Some of them surviving okay. Some of them facing tragedy. But the real point of the book, War and Peace, is that even when there was peace, there was really not any peace. I've told you I've not finished it. I've made it through book two, and I don't even remember how many there are. But, But what you see is these families and just the devastation that's wrought, and some of that is by external circumstances of the war that happened. But really what destroys the families is not the war. It's themselves it's the choices they make the way they respond to both good and bad ends up just breaking them to pieces and today in our text we're, we're going to cover a large chunk we're not going to read everything we're not going to have there's there's amazing miracles that happens from the very simple things that god provides for a guy who borrowed an axe and it gets thrown in a river by accident he he takes care of that individual God saves the axe head, which was very precious in that day. You couldn't just go to the depot. You kind of had to get a hammer and a blacksmith shop. But there's all these amazing things that happen. But I want to focus on not so much the miracles, but the work of God and, and what he's doing in two different groups of people. The first is an individual. It's Elisha. It's the prophet. He, he's the guy that's speaking for God right now. And then the second group of people are three kings, not not the Christmas three kings, but three kings, one of Israel, he was evil, one of Syria, and he was evil, and then the next king of Syria, who was really evil. He he was just dastardly. And I want us to kind of compare and contrast and see this exact same thing that Tolstoy wrote about almost 200 years ago, where it's not so much the, the political actions, even horrible things like war that make and shape people. It's very much more their decisions and their responses that shape them. So l- let's get into the word. We're going to be, like I said, in Second Kings chapter 6. We're going to jump into verse 8. Second Kings chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 8. So King of Syria, uh, his name's Ben Hadad. If you care about that, um, there's, there's a couple statues of them out there. You can actually look up and kind of see ish what he kind of looked like back then, in that day. This is about 850 BC. And so this is, this is a very politically unstable time, and there's some evil, evil folks out there doing very evil things. So let's jump in. First kings, ch- or, excuse me, Second Kings, chapter six. We're going to start in verse eight. Once, when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, at such and such a place shall be my camp. War strategy meeting, they're, going to, they're planning, we're going to camp here, we'll eventually go in. They were actually just raiding Israel, basically, for money. They were, they were stealing food, money, people. Verse 9, but the man of God, this is Elisha, sent word to the king of Israel Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. So Elisha is given supernatural revelation by God. Here's what they're planning. Y'all take care of yourselves. He tells the king, verse 10, And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him, so that he saved himself there more once, more than once or twice, so the king saved through all this. And the mind of the king of the Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing, and he called his servants and said to them, "Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel?" So God's knowledge and sovereignty over all the nations had simply I mean, it had weirded out the king of Syria. He, whoa whoa whoa, what is going on? How did they know that? He's convinced there's a spy, there's a traitor in his inner circle because the national military secrets were going out on the, you know, 850 B.C. equivalent of WikiLeaks. I mean, everybody knows what the king's thinking. And the king, what is going on? Now, interestingly enough, this very king knew of the true God. You see, his general, Naaman, had just been healed by the true God. This king should have gotten an idea of what was going on, realized what he was doing was evil, was oppressive, and woke up. But he didn't. Verse 12. And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king. Not not me, not me. But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. Verse 13. Again, King should have responded, he should have woke up, he didn't. Verse thirteen. And he said, Go and see where he is at, that I may send and seize him. It was told, Behold, he is at Dothan, it's a town, small town. So he sent there horses and chariots, and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold an army with horses and chariots, was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? I can't think of too many situations in life that could much be much worse than the superpower of the world sending the elite armed forces against me personally. Not my country, me. But that's how Elisha woke up. Talk about Monday morning, right? I mean, this is, yeah, it's a day. Elisha, God's prophet, God's guy, the good guy in the story, is getting attacked personally by an army. Just think. Can you imagine the feeling Osama bin Laden had in 2011? Hiding in a cave? Can you imagine the feeling in 2003 when Saddam Hussein's hiding in a bunker? That's what Elisha was faced with. The elite military superpower is after me. It's a scary thought, but the crazy part is how Elisha responds Elisha doesn't panic. I I mean, I know me. I'm just, I'm going to be going nuts at that point. I'm useless. Elisha responds in such a beautiful way. I want you to see it. And I want you to see the why in his response. Just catch this. Follow along with the text here. Verse 16. He said, do not be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with Christ them. Then Elisha prayed and said, Oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, please strike this people with blindness. Uh, By the way, I mean, Think about that. Army is attacking you. and Hey, God, would you mind just strike them with blindness? There's no panic. There's no fear. I I have trouble even reading in this passage because it's so against what's inside of me. The Lord responded, So he struck them with a blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, This is not the way and this is not the city follow me, and I will bring you to the man you seek. And he led them to Samaria. This would be the equivalent of walking right into Fort Knox with your enemy. I mean, he leads them to the capital city where all the army's at. And in just this, these short, short verses, God's taking care of the problem. That to me is not the. I mean, we. This is a Bible story. Of course, God's going to take care of the problem, right? I mean, that's what He does. But do you see Elisha's peace? I don't know about you, but when the bad stuff hits, that's usually not how I act. I get angry. Sometimes I worry, I panic, I try to take charge. I'm, I'm going to grab this thing, grab the bull by the horns. We have all these responses, and, and, I'm, and not necessarily, and sometimes there is cause for anger. We should be concerned at things. But Elisha has this peace that should be the marker of the man or woman of God. Remember back to what Jeff read earlier, Psalm 27, 3. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. That was written about 200 years before this incident. A man named David, the first good king of Israel, He knew God was under control and when the Saul's army, the previous king, attacked David, David had the exact same experience. And he had the exact same peace. It wasn't peace politically. It wasn't peace because everything was happy and, and okay. It was a peace by a trust in a sovereign, good God in which Elisha and David had total, complete confidence. Do you remember the words of another guy who loved the Lord? His name was Paul. He was a missionary, the first missionary. And he's in jail. You know what he says about life? To live as Christ, to die is gain. In other words, if I get out of here, I'm just going to keep living for Jesus. And if I die, well, that's even better. I get to see Jesus. This peace that pervades, so in a minute, that's not natural, is it? That's not normal. Too many of us worry because we think God really can't handle our problems. I mean, we wouldn't say that, right? We don't say, oh, well, I don't, uh, God, but, but we, we act like it. We feel it. We don't really think God can do it. There's no way out of this. Have you ever said that? I don't know why I have. But some of us even think a little differently. We know God's big and God's good and God's powerful. We know that. God wouldn't take care of me. I'm not good enough. I'm not strong enough. I'm not the guy He's going to take care of. God doesn't really love me. God couldn't love a person like me. Let me give you an encouraging word here, brother or sister. Jesus died for you. God does love you that much. I was on a flight a while ago in the spring, and the plane was shaking around with crazy. It was one of those flights you tell the stories about, right? My wife, she just loves it She thinks that's fun, you know. <laughs> no, she was, she was panicking. There, was, there, there, were, there were claw marks in the hand, you know. I was on the aisle, and I've been on a lot of flights. I've been on some, some sketchy ones. But I wasn't worried this flight. And, and something I've learned as I've traveled is you watch the stewards and the stewardesses. And when they're just hanging out talking and drinking coffee, you're good. You're good. And so they, that's exactly, they were about the back. They were talking, yeah, we're headed here next. And we're headed here next. So I'm just like, all right, this, this is not fun, but we're going to get through. Because they knew what was going on, right? They'd been through this before. I could see everything was fine. I didn't enjoy it, but it was okay. Then suddenly everything changed. We hit a big bump. I mean a big bump. And I look back to see the response of the flight attendants, and I see a flight attendant sprawled out on her back, grabbing seat here, seat here, leg locked around this seat, and leg locked around my seat. And you know what my response was then? We're gonna pray, all right. I mean, like that—that's that is that is number one way to improve your prayer life right there, because she knew what was going on and she knew how to respond. She knew that wasn't normal. Praise the Lord, we're we're still here, still breathing. Well, neither of us had a heart attack when you know what's going on, when you have experience, when you have knowledge, you know the appropriate way to respond, right? Let me me tell you about the knowledge you have, Christian, or the knowledge you can have, someone who's exploring Christ. You see, you know as a believer about your eternal state. The Bible actually tells us we can know about heaven. Isn't that amazing? There are Muslims across this globe wondering if their good will outweigh their bad and if Allah might be merciful. There are Mormons across this country hoping to do enough good to make it. They're just average folks who aren't sure if they're good enough. But the Bible says in John, I have written these things that you may know. You see, Jesus is the one who was good enough for us. Jesus is the one who was right for us. And Jesus is the one who died for our sins. Our relationship with God is not based on how good we are. You may be a really nice person. You may go out of your way to do good things. But that's not good enough to make God's standard. And you may be a rotten person. You may know the darkness that's in your heart. But here's the good news. Neither of those changes your eternal state. What changes your eternal state is what do you do and what do you believe about Jesus Christ, God the Son, made flesh, who died for your sins. Will you turn away from your ways and your attempts to save yourself and turn to Him, that's what the Bible calls repentance, turning away from our sin to the Savior, and then will you trust Him to save? That's what makes a difference. And as John 3.16, the verse most of us could probably quote, says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him, catch the next part, will have eternal life. It's not maybe. It's not for a little bit. If you keep doing this and you really clean yourself up. No, you have eternal life. If you are a believer, you can rest on the complete confidence of God that He loves you. He loved you yesterday when you were yelling at your spouse, and His death on the cross covered it. He loved you last week when you were lazy at work, and His death covered it. He loved you for that time so many years ago that you remember that haunts your memories for that thing you did. Jesus died for it and covers that sin. And that's what you have as a believer. You have that knowledge. The worst anything anybody could do to you is kill you and you get to be with Jesus. No one no matter what they do, can take that away. And so my plea to you, if you're a believer, keep on trusting and let that faith ground you. And as the Bible puts it, a peace that passes all understanding. Respond as Paul commanded us in Philippians 4, verse 8. Excuse me. Present your request to God with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. That's actually where that passage I just quoted comes from. The peace of God will surround your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He just says, just ask. Just ask. You can know that. And just like those flight attendants could sit around and drink coffee during the shaking and the bumping, because they knew it was okay. You can go through life in peace like this man Elijah did. But not only that, Not only do we know about us, we know how this crazy story called life and the world ends. We don't know who's going to be elected next as president. We don't know how this wild impeachment. We have no clue what what we're going to end up with in a month, a week, tomorrow. It might be great it might be bad. But you know what we know? We know how the story ends whatever side of the political aisle you end up on it doesn't end up with the republicans or the democrats winning you know who wins jesus it doesn't end up with this war being won it doesn't end up with any of that it ends up with jesus i saw a movie this summer on the way to central asia it's called free solo anybody seen it yet Wow, okay, I'm going to have to tell you about this one. All right, so Free Solo, it's really a good movie. It's a really good movie. Um, It's about a rock climber. And I I used to love rock climbing. I'm a little bit out of the shape and a little too old for that. Um, But this guy was a nut rock climber. So what he did was what was called free soloing. So free climbing is where you are not supported by a top rope. And when you free solo, that means you're not even supported by a bottom rope because you're by yourself. It means it's you, a rock, and a bag of chalk to keep your hands dry. And so if you fall, you keep falling until something encourages you to stop. It's not exactly smart. So this guy... And there's a whole story behind this, but this guy climbed El Cap, El Capitan in Yosemite, the largest rock in the world, 3,000 vertical feet. And when I say vertical, I'm talking straight up. Got to go see it uh, this spring. Actually, after that flight, I was just talking about, ironically. It's a big rock. And I mean, you just, it's one of those, you look back and it just keeps going and it is just straight up and smooth. Crazy that anybody can climb it. And this dude gets out of his van, yeah, he lives in a van, and, and just climbs it and did it. But the way the movie, I'm not spoiling the movie for you, don't worry, that's not what the movie's about. The very first scene of the movie is him making it to the top. And you know why the director did that? Because there's not a soul on this planet who wanted to watch that movie if you didn't know he made it. It was way too stressful. I mean, I, I knew he made it, and it's... <laughs> but you knew the ending. You knew it. So I pushed through the movie, which was real, again, it was good because I knew the ending. Let me tell you, folks, we know the ending. We know how all this stuff wraps up. I don't mean to give you the spoiler alert or anything like this, but this whole mess of a world doesn't end with cataclysm of climate change, political failure, nuclear war, cancer, bankruptcy, terrorism. It ends with the return of an infinitely powerful Middle Eastern man on a white horse, tatted up to show everybody he's the boss. With no hesitation to literally stomp out the largest army in the world that the devil could amass, all the while making his adopted family, his kids, smile. That's how it ends, folks. We know the end of the story. It doesn't end up with little baby Jesus, meek and mild. It ends up with Jesus. Come and He's boss, man. I, there is no messing with He is ultimately powerful, and He has that power today, and He waits for you to come and rest in Him. That's how the story ends, and Elisha knew how the story ended, and he didn't care what happened, and he happened to know God was going to take care of this particular incident. So look with me in verse 20. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elijah, my father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? It actually says it twice. He got that. It's ex- so, like, I get a kill? them, I get a kill? Verse 22. He answered, you shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you've taken captive with your sword, <laughs> with your bow? Set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. Let's show them mercy. One, well, that's an act of God, showing mercy to your enemy. But two, Think about this. This is a good political mood. So he prepared for them a great feast in verse 23. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away and they went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on raids in the land of Israel. Verse 24. The raiding stops. We go to a siege. Something, there's, there's a pause. There's some time here that passes. Verse 24. Afterward, Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. So the king gets this, I mean, check out Ben-Hadad, this, this dude's stubborn, all right? I mean, catch his, his attitude here. He's just had his entire army sent back, yeah, we saw these wild chariot fire horse things, then we got blind, then they led us to Samaria, then they showed mercy to us. And we're coming back and saying, we don't really want to go back there. Ben-Hadad, nope. The king of Samaria. Should have got the message not to mess with Elisha. He definitely should have got the message not to mess with God. But he ignored it. He ignored it. So rather than sending raids, rather than a little attack, he goes at it in verse 25. There was great famine in Samaria as they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of cereal, cereal, silver. I can't talk. They're eating the donkey's head as cereal. That's what's supposed to anyway, that, that wasn't That's not in the notes. I'm trying to save myself. Until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and a fourth of a cob, that's like a cup, of dove's dung for five shekels of silver. People are paying precious metals for something so nasty. No one would want to eat it. That's how bad it was. But it gets worse. Verse twenty-six. Now, as the king of Israel is passing by on the wall, he's walking around checking out his city. A woman cried out to him for help. Help, my lord, O king! She said to him, and he said to her, "If the Lord won't help you, how should I help you? From the threshing floor, from the wine press." You see the utter forsaking of God? He rejected everything God said. He worshipped false idols. He killed God's prophets. And now he's mad because God didn't take care of him. Should that maybe be a wake-up call? If you utterly forsake God, why are you blaming Him for your mess? Let's keep going. Verse 28. And the king said to her, What is your trouble? And I, we're about to get to an um, unsettling text. I don't know any other way to put it. And, and the king's asked her, What is your trouble? She said, This woman said to me, Give, you me, or give your son that we may eat him today. And we will eat my son tomorrow. There resulted cannibalism. Verse 29, so, they, so we boiled my son and ate him. The next day I said to her, give your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. Uh, this has to be one of the most shocking, like glaring, what in the world text in all the Bible. These two women in some delusional state of desperation kill and eat. One of the greatest gifts God could give to women. Something so precious and irreplaceable. Someone who's created in the very image of God. These children are made to be guarded with our lives. Not taken advantage of. And the, the depravity they've resulted to is the fight's not about whether it's right or wrong. It's about why the second woman won't murder her child too. This is a heartbreaking scene that's sadly been played over and over in history as children are killed in the name of purification, politics, choice, convenience, even poverty. You can see the evil of these women. It's blatant. It's obvious. But why is it so hard to see this same act committed 1,800 times per day in clinics across the United States? But also don't miss the reason these women were desperate and were turning to killing their own children. It's because they didn't have food. Don't miss the other culprits in infanticide and abortion. The king of Israel, the king of Syria, were fighting unjust wars for political gain. They were greedy, they were selfish, and they created a world where poverty was overwhelming. Don't miss the other culprits. And don't just see the others. We need to see ourselves. Verse 30. When the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. Now he's passing by the wall, and the people looked, and behold, he had sackcloth beneath his body. Everything seems good. That's a sign of repentance. That's a sign of turning back to God, but look what he's actually doing. And he said, May God do so to me. In other words, may God kill me and boil me and eat me. And more also, if the head of Elisha The son of Shaphat remains on his shoulders today. You see what happened? In beginning to look at the grief over sin and what should have been a plea for God's help, the king was simply throwing a fit over things being bad. Rather than turning to God in a desperate hour, he sought to fill his stomach, win his battle, and retain his power. I want to take a little of a side Um, Many of you know, I spent the latter part of the last week in Dallas at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission's conference on caring well. That's that's a whole lot of words, I know. Um, it, It was a time of learning to care for survivors and seeking to prevent sexual abuse in the church. Just like what Israel experienced, this was one of the darkest times I can remember in a long, long time. I saw before my eyes the statistics of 700 documented cases of sexual abuse in Southern Baptist churches. Which, according to statistics, represents about 7,000 cases of sexual abuse in Southern Baptist churches. Seven. 1000 if statistics are correct and, and those statistics are horrible but for me this week those turned into faces and names of men and women sharing their stories what made me angry was that a, a pattern, a motif, appeared over and over and over. And it was that a man, almost always, or a woman in leadership, wanted to preserve their position and power to the neglect, hiding, and even attack upon the victims and survivors. Castigating these men, women, and children who shared their stories, begging for help. These survivors were seen as problems to be silenced rather than people. Maybe one of the reasons God allowed a fool king to fight for his power when seeing the death of the children was to wake us up to evil actions going on today. Pastors, sadly, church leaders, denominational leaders who've covered up abuse, and again, shove these abuse survivors into a second hurricane of evil. Um, so I want to pause now. For the first of what I plan to be many, many times. And say, if you're an abuse survivor or your family is abuse survivor, we love you. And we're sorry for what's happened to you. At our church, we don't want to expose you further. We want to comfort you and love you and care for you. We want to make our church a very safe place for you. We've done some things to do that, and some of those are really good. We haven't done enough, and we want to do more, and we will. So please hear that and please know and see that men and women who abuse power are crushing people and the heartbreaking reality, some of that crushing has happened in our church, our tribe, folks, our tribe. The king blamed the man of God for speaking the word of God rather than repenting of his sin and chancing losing his standing. I'm going to fast forward a little bit in this story. He, he sends a posse to kill Elisha. Once again, the king at war confronted a man of God and found him trusting in the peace of God. Elijah <laughs> goes with this wild idea to protect himself. He's like, yeah, don't answer the door that time. I mean, that's really how the Bible puts it. It's it's pretty funny. Read through it this week. After a flustered hit squad was about to give up and go home, Elijah yells through the door and told them to stop fighting God and turn to God. God was going to save the people despite their leader's failure. God was going to work despite the leaders. That's why at Providence, we want to openly tell you the congregation, you have the final authority to fire me and Jeff and Jeff and all the other leaders if we go wrong. And you need to do it. We must keep the gospel, not the leaders. And I hope and pray that never happens here. But that's why we place it in your hands. The work of the gospel is too important Jesus is too good to let us mess that up as leaders. It's too important. So track back with me. We're gonna s- pop over the next chapter. Second Kings chapter seven. We're in verse three now. That's a great story. I, I-, I love this part. We're, we're, okay, we're, we're kind of breathing now. All right, just we're, we're gonna come up a little bit. All right, everybody breathe with me. Now there were four men who were lepers, terminal disease, skin disease at the entrance to the gate. And they said to one another, Why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, let us enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we'll die there. If we sit here, we'll die also. If they went back into the city, they they would have been cast out, possibly killed, because no one wanted this terminal illness. So in the middle of there, verse 4. So now come, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. In other words, even just a quick death better than this. That's how bad it had gotten. Verse 5. So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. They left. Verse 6, for the Lord had made the army of the Syrians to hear the sounds of chariots and of horses, a sound of a great army. So they said to one another, behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of, the e- of Egypt to come against us. They thought they were outnumbered. So they fled away in the twilight, abandoned their tents, their horses, and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was, and fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent and they ate and they drank. They carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent and carried off things from it and went and hid them. Then they said to one another, We are not doing right. This day it's a day of good news if we are silent and wait until the morning light punishment will overtake us now therefore come let us go tell the king's household isn't it just like god to take four terminally ill dudes ready to die they they, they're considering themselves good as dead to share the good news that God saved. God bested the evil armies and the evil kings with a miraculous surround sound system. Right? Don't you love the mind of God? <laughs> we'll just scare the pants off those folks. That's, that's the plan. It worked. Bloodless. Totally effective. He scared them out of their wits. God's bringing his people peace. This story continues on. I'm going to give you the the cliff note versions. Ben-Hadad, this king of Syria, after all of this, he becomes sick. And he sends a general to Elisha to ask if he will live. Isn't that ironic? I mean, don't miss this. The warlord asked the prophet he tried to assassinate for advice. God's got this, doesn't he? He's got it all under control. But watch this peaceful prophet again. Oh man, we see, we see the heart of God so much. Elisha, when he hears this question, begins to weep. He just cries. The general says, what, what, what is going on? God tells Elisha, Ben-Hadad is going to live from the sickness he's going to recover but he will die and Elisha wept for his bitter enemy's death without Christ sure enough the general goes back and says Ben got good news hey send everybody else out you, you might not want this is medical care you know HIPAA stuff sends everybody else out and says I got some good news for you Ben the sickness isn't going to kill you. And in Ben's excitement, he didn't notice the wet blanket that the general shoved over his face and choked him to death. He then took over the car- army, then the nation. That's the story. So let me ask you, who, who are you like? Who do you identify with in the story are you like these men, the kings of Israel and Syria, the generals seeking to be king at any cost? Are you at war? The Bible has dire news for you. It says in our natural state we are at enmity or, or war with God in Romans 5-7. The Bible says that you are in the kingdom of the evil one, the devil, and are spiritually dead in Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. In James 4, 4, it says that your way of doing life is making you an enemy of God. And I don't say this to condemn you because I have been there and too much of the time I still act like I'm there. I give this to you as a warning that this life is so much more than you realize. You are at the heart of a spiritual war. No one wants war. So just like these four men with leprosy who were greedy and messed up but woke up and got to share the good news, I come to you with incredible joy. I come as a former warlord, as a former condemned man, an enemy of the true King of Jesus, but say, I heard the good news and I want to share it with you that Jesus saves Folks like us. And just like God saved after that good news that there's food, Jesus saves folks like you and me. Be saved, brother or sister. Be saved. But for those of you who have been, most of you in this congregation, members of our church, We were brought here to a family of God, and we should be at peace with God. That is our state. We have been made right with God. We have been robed in the very righteousness of Christ. But unfortunately, like Japanese soldiers after World War II who were stuck off on these lonely islands and had never heard the war was over, they kept fighting. A war that didn't exist. And that's what goes on in our hearts. We should have the peace of God. Daily. No matter what hits. Elisha, this is not a happy story for Elisha. He's got a hit on him. That's a bad day. And he's still at peace. He's trusting His Savior. I don't want to minimize real trouble because there, I mean, we talked about sexual abuse. There's real huge things out there. Some of these are big, some of them are not solved by a little thing. This is not meant to be equipped that solves all the problems. Some heart issues need counsel, medical treatment, months of prayer, spiritual struggle that sometimes lasts a lifetime, but ultimately, as Christians, we are at peace. We know what God has done for us we trust Him and we are in relationship with Him and we know how the story ends. So now I want to talk to you about what's there. So we end the sermon and move on to a time of the Lord's Supper. I want to read you a song I just heard this week. But first I want to talk about what we're going to do. We're going to take the Lord's Supper This is a time when we we take a piece of bread, a little bit of juice, and we remember Jesus' body and Jesus' blood. That's what those two things represent. They're not magic. I'm not a priest. I'm not re sacrificing Jesus. We're remembering what Christ did on that cross 2,000 years ago. And so the invitation to you as a Christian, um, and we ask as a church that, that you be a member of a church in good standing. doesn't have to be this one if you're visiting from out of town or in town we'd love to share this with you it's not our table it's christ to remember the body of jesus died for you he brought you peace he was broken because we're broken people full of sin his blood was shed because of the blood we have shed of our neighbors, friends, brothers and sisters out there. He died for you and he died for me. And we come because Jesus is the way to peace with God. So we're going to take this humbly, quietly. Ms. Tedra's going to come play. Some deacons will pass these out. We're going to contemplate the body and the blood of Christ and our peace. We're going to trust Him again. We're going to continue on in our faith. That's what we do. i want to read you an expression of that. This is from Matt Boswell. It's called Christ the Sure and Steady Anchor. Christ the sure and steady anchor in the fury of the storm when the winds of doubt blow through me and my sails have all been torn in the suffering, in the sorrow when my sinking hopes are few. I will hold fast to the anchor. It will never be removed. Christ, the sure and steady anchor, while the tempest rages on when temptation claims the battle and it seems the night has won, deeper still then goes my anchor. Though I justly stand accused, I will hold fast to the anchor. It shall never be removed. Christ, the sure and steady anchor, though the floods of unbelief Helpless somehow, oh my soul, now lift your eyes to Calvary. This my ballast of assurance, see his love forever proved. I will hold fast to the anchor, it will never be removed. Christ is the sure and steady anchor as we face the wave of death. All the way, folks. Christ will take you all the way home. When these trials give way to glory, as we draw our final breath, when we cross that great horizon, clouds behind, and life is secure, and the calm will be even better for the storms that we've endured. Christ, the sure of our salvation, He's ever faithful. He's ever true. We will hold fast to the anchor. It shall never be removed. Let's pray. Jesus, we're all over the place today. Some hurting. Some rejoicing. Some numb. But Jesus, you are the sure and steady anchor. You are the one who can save, who can answer every one of us. Wherever we're at. Draw our minds and hearts to you, Lord. I pray for the friend here that doesn't know you. That you would draw their heart to you. The warring soul. Lord, I pray for the child, for the teenager here who you've been stirring in and they are feeling the stirs of war. That you would save them, God, and bring them to peace. Give us faith trust in you. And Lord, as we come now to the table of your supper, we thank you for your body given for us, Jesus. We thank you for your blood shed for us, that you died for us. Jesus, you also died for the Father. You died to make peace for the children he loves. Thank you, Jesus. Father, thank you for sending your Son. Spirit, thank you for drawing us near this morning. In your precious holy name we pray. Amen.